So Money episode 820, Jenny Shi, business coach. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. My parents, I don't know for sure, but I feel like they lived right at the edge of the money they had. They bought the house they could just barely afford. We went on vacations they just had enough money for. Like everything was just sort of at the edge. And I must have picked up on this, like the shoe could drop at any moment, even though they didn't talk like that. There must have been something. So in me, it sparked something like, okay, if I want to be okay, if I want to be safe, I need to make sure that I start having enough. Going down memory lane with our guest, Jenny Shi today. She's a top business coach who helps women optimize their businesses as well as their time. Jenny herself works a 30-hour work week and earns $650,000 a year. On top of it, she's recovering from Lyme disease. So how she managed to build her career amidst that diagnosis is something we dive into. She takes us behind the scenes and offers advice for all of us on how to budget our time like we do our dollars. And for those of you interested in starting a business or you're in the thick of running a business, how to charge for your products and services and find your best clients. Here's Jenny Shi. Jenny Shi, welcome to So Money. Happy New Year. This is airing in January. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Farnoosh. I'm so glad to be here. Man, where do we start, Jenny? <laughs> First of all, how's, how, how are you currently with your battle with Lyme disease? I know that's a huge part of your narrative and, and part of why a lot of people are inspired to learn from you and work with you is because you have really triumphed despite a lot of odds, one being a major health battle. So how are you feeling these days? I would say I'm like maybe 90, 90% better, 95. The Lyme itself is gone, but the treatment of the Lyme really ravaged my whole system. And so it's been a journey to just get back to health. I'm not where I was before I got sick, um, but that was also a long time ago. So I have to maybe adjust my uh, calibration a little bit, but I'm not all the way there, but I'm doing really well overall. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. All right. Well, we'll, it's it's an important part of your narrative, I think. It really uh, it does describe your character to an extent. This woman who was able to, you know, um, manage her health as she was battling with Lyme disease while also building a business, a thriving business, an efficient business. You're all <laughs> about efficiency. I love that. Uh, working a thirty hour or less week. I know we're all conditioned to want that four hour week. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but 30 hours seems nice too. 30 yeah. hours seems nice. Let's start there. Um, well, so just to give us another step back here, you are a highly experienced business coach. Um, you know, as you wrote to me to uh, come on this show, you mentioned you draw in $650,000 in annual revenue while working 30 hours a week or less. So talk about some of the efficiencies that you put into place to get you to that 30 hour week. Yeah, that's great. So I would say it's more like a boundary that I created when I started my business back in 2009. So one of the things that frustrated me about corporate life was that you're expected to be in the office 
you know, from eight until five, Monday through Friday, even if you were more efficient and got all your work done. So I was a super efficient worker. I just sort of went in and did my work and I don't let myself get pulled into a lot of distractions. And I was frustrated that I just had to like put in this space time. So I thought, well, when I leave and do my own business, I don't want to work hours that are just quote unquote expected that that doesn't work for me. And what I found is, and Cal Newport talks about this in his book, deep work, that when we are doing really highly focused work, we can't actually work 40 hours a week. Our brain doesn't do that. And so what I realized over the years is that I can only work 30 hours a week if I'm really working. Like I'm not doing a fluffy, fuddy-duddy, like, you know, like make work. I'm doing real work. And so when I started my business, I thought, well, I'm going to do real work and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do work and I'm going to stretch my brain and I have to think hard and you can only do so many hours of that. So I started it this way. I am only going to work at most 30 hours a week on average because that's all I can do and I want time for the rest of my life. So then the question became, how do I fit my business and my work into this schedule? And then that's kind of where I started to ask maybe different questions than most people would ask when it comes to business. So like your finances, you made a budget for your time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Budgeted your time. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yes. <laughs> Which sometimes, you know, feels limiting, can feel restrictive. Oh, I can't, but yes. I really want to spend 18 hours on this project. I think what's beautiful about a budget is that things tend to fall in place because what you're really doing when you're budgeting, whether it's your money or your time, is establishing your priorities, right? Yes. Your budget yes. is, is it's a framework that you created for your work, but really it's a it's 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 so much more. It represents kind of what you want your life to be all about. Exactly. Which is not just work. Yes. Yes. Just like your money, you spend your money where your values are. The same thing with your time. You spend your time where like, where your values or your priorities are. You're the first person to compare it to a financial budget. You just made my day. I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking to me. This is I, I know, so right? Everything is a financial metaphor. Okay. <laughs> um, um, and is this what you help a lot of your clients with? My primary goal with my clients is to help them build a one-on-one service-based business that makes a difference for others, where it allows them to do work they love, and do it all within this framework of 30 hours a week. So many of my clients, I would say at least half, maybe more, start out working with me while they're working a full-time traditional job. So they've got maybe 10. And so one of the things that pulls them in is we talk about where to spend your time exactly. Because you know, there's so many social media platforms. There's so many different experts telling you all these things you need to do to grow your business. And we cut through all of that noise and say, okay, no, actually right now where you are in your business at this moment, this is where you need to spend your time. Ignore all that other noise and just focus here. And we start with what your priorities are to grow your business, where you are right now, and also how much time you have. A lot of the folks I work with, like I said, have full-time jobs. They also have families. Some of them are caring for ill parents. So their schedule constrained. Their schedule may not be constrained like mine was in terms of health. So that is some of it. But in this busy world, how do you, how do we most effectively make the use of our time to hit these business goals? So that's, it's a, the time time management piece of it or prioritization piece of it is a huge part of what we do so that they can actually go out and achieve their goals. A really popular book is called The One Thing. Have you read this or heard of it? 
And it's it's it was years ago. This book came out called The One Thing, and I bought it. And the real premise is that we're we're way too scattered. You know, to your point, we have so many push pulls, and we want to do a lot of things. Like we're very ambitious. So uh, can you can you can't we can't help ourselves sometimes. But this book was like the most successful people kind of identify that one thing, that one priority that they're going to really double down on and lean into, and and everything else kind of goes to the wayside. Not to say that like you're going to ignore your family or your relationships, but in your professional life, especially as you're building, say, a business or you're trying to transition to being self-employed, it can feel like you have all these tasks that have to get happen that have to be be accomplished at the same time in tandem. Um, mm-hmm. I find that to be overwhelming to me. Just having being being told just focus on one thing. What yeah. are your what's your philosophy around focus? Yeah, you know. I- to touch on a one thing book, I, I'm sitting right next to my bookshelf and I pulled it off and I was like, oh yeah, I remember buying that book. I don't think I ever read it. <laughs> I didn't actually, I didn't finish it because I got distracted. <laughs> I had 18 I, things telling me. I, right? Competing for <laughs> my attention. So I couldn't read the one thing. I can't narrow it down to why. That's just not going to I kind of disagree with the philosophy a little bit simply because it creates the exact reaction you had. It feels so impossible that it, it becomes an inaccessible goal. So I like to talk to folks about creating, creating mold, like what are your top two priorities? So for me, my top, top business priority is pay the bills, like pay myself, pay my team, have some room for growth. That's my business goal. And to do that in the context of my like top value or second value, they're kind of tied is, so I have time for the rest of my life. So I want this health and freedom component and I want to have a successful business. And so when we give ourselves a little bit more room, we then say, oh, okay, like I can, I can achieve these couple things. So then we look at each one of those, like, okay, my health, what is the highest priority for me and my health right now? What do I need to make sure that I fit into my day? What is the highest priority for me when it comes to my business right now? If my goal is to, you know, what is the goal and what is the most efficient way to get there? So in terms of the question of focus, it's like get really clear on these values and priorities and then really strategically ask yourself how you can achieve that goal. Then focus on the things that are only going to get you there and really weeding out all the distractions because we are not we are not, uh, there are plenty of distractions available at all times. And we really have to become, we have to become master it's over a them. Discipline, <laughs> right. It's a habit you have to form, but it does back the, I, I am curious, you know, Jenny, she is a young girl. Were you also this sort of, did it come a little <laughs> more naturally to you than your friends? Like you were, you were very on top of things. Yeah, I'm kind of, I am a little bit wired this way. I am a little bit wired. I was voted in my high school class, um, most diligent. And I, I laughed then and I still laugh now. The reason I was voted most diligent is because nobody knew what diligent meant and they just picked the dorkiest girl in high school. And that was me. And so that's what they, that's what they called me. But, um, I would say, look at you now. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, there's definitely a part of me that is wired this way, which is good and bad. <laughs> it comes with its downside too. Hmm. Well, um, it's it's profited you very well in your personal life, and it's it's helped so many people. Um, one of the topics that I think uh, I also want to touch on base with you on is, you know, how to have conversations with clients about what you're worth, what your rate is. Like, how do you 
how do you decide what to charge for your business, oh, for your services? Yeah. Especially for those of us listening who uh, maybe were kind of experimenting with a project that we want to someday grow into a business. It's a side hustle. We're doing maybe a few one-offs for clients here and there. Um, we feel maybe we're so new to it. We can't charge a ton. How do you kind of account for your value? Excellent. I love this question because I sort of take a different tack than what most people teach. And it's been proven by my clients over and over again to be the beginning of a highly profitable business into multiple six figures. A client has gone up to a million just starting with this one concept. And that is what I call a bite-sized offer. And it's a very simple idea. It's sort of like the idea of a minimum viable product in the product world. Not exactly the same, but kind of close, but for services. And so wherever you're at, you know, you've got this idea you want to try out, but you haven't really been paid for it much, especially in your own business. Start with something really small, like $99 small. And the goal here isn't to get rich or make a ton of money, but the goal is to serve and learn. So you're going to, for example, I work with a lot of coaches, nutritionists, these one-on-one service providers where their time is really on the phone with a client. So this bite-sized offer for them looks like a $90 consulting session or coaching session to achieve a very specific objective. And it has to be, you know, you're not going to lose 50 pounds if you're a weight loss coach in one 90-minute session, but you're maybe going to identify the top emotional eating trigger that's preventing you from losing weight. So one tiny, small offer, you're going to do 90 minutes to work on help creating this result. And you're going to do a 30 minute follow-up session with them, say two weeks later, and you charge $99. And the goal here is to really focus on a result that you can provide to your most amazing target client that you could imagine working with. And you go out and for $99, most people who have something they want to achieve, say start to lose weight or have a better social media presence for their business or whatever it is that they're doing or figure out their next career steps, most people are willing to risk 99 bucks. They're like, yeah, I'll give this a try. And so that's sort of why starting at $99 can be so powerful. So you start at $99, you serve a couple people, you blow their minds with what you deliver in only 90 minutes. And in the process, at some point between three and 10 clients, this happens every single time, the service provider goes, oh, I know if I just fill in the blank, if I just added two more sessions, we could also create this next result for them. If I just changed how I talked about this thing, then we could, they get this they get this aha moment that came from serving their target client. Sometimes the aha moment is, oh, I get it. I totally don't like doing this work. Right. I go in another direction. But, but I the, love what the, you're saying about having your first focus be on not making the big bucks, but rather, you know, over delivering and learning and really keeping your ear to the ground. And along the way, you're building a loyal community, right? Like when you over deliver on $99, they can't wait to hear what else you have in store. And the worst thing that happens is they're like, I didn't like that. Can I have my money back? And you're like, right. It's only 99 bucks. It's fine. (laughs) And so as you do this, as, as business owners start out with this bite-sized offer and they serve and learn, they're going to have aha moments. They're going to make the packages bigger. They're going to raise their prices. They're going to serve three to 10 more clients. They're going to have another aha moment. They're going to serve and learn again. And just by iterating over and over, they're learning a ton about themselves and where their zone of genius is, how to talk about things in a way that their prospects 
really understand how to make these transformational results for their prospects. And they're slowly raising their prices without feeling like, you know, a lot of people say, go out and charge premium prices and make sure you, you know, value your time. And, but it sets people up for this rub. They're like, well, but I don't know for sure that I can deliver. So when you start small and you build organically, you're confident every step of the way you feel an integrity, you know, that you can deliver for your clients. I've had clients do this and scale to six figures in one year. That those people are hustlers. They're, they're really out there making it work, but it's so possible. And, and they do it. And along the way, they really hone in on what makes them different as opposed to trying to figure out the answers to all those questions at the beginning when they don't even know, you know, like, who am I? What is my brand? What do I stand for? You, you don't know that when you're just getting started, but by serving clients and slowly growing your packages, you figure it out as you go. Your clients show you who you are. It's so speaking, powerful. Speaking of clients, how do you find clients? So that's great advice around how to pr- structure your pricing. But yeah. ultimately, you need to find the people to buy that $99 product. And the internet is an abyss. Um, I guess you could do it through word of mouth, but these days everyone does all of their connecting and client sourcing a lot of times online. Um, You have this rule. It's called the 20% rule. It's your secret to finding your ideal clients online. Tell us all about that. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things here. So I think when you're first getting started, those $99 clients, they're people you know and people who know people you know. So start with the people you know that already know, like, and trust you. Email. People discount this first step. Um, Email everyone you know. I tell my clients to make a list of 100 people. And they're like, I don't know 100 people. Yes, you do. (laughs) Um, And so start by reaching out to people that you know. And you will get those first few bites from your immediate, maybe not immediate sphere, but you know, next level sphere, you get those few people and then you start to get traction. So that's the first place to start. And then once you want to venture into this online space that, uh, you want to look for So this is a little bit, um, complicated to explain over audio, but we can do it. So first is if you were to put a circle in the middle of your paper, um, just draw a big old circle on the plane in, in the, on the paper. And in the middle, you want to write the descriptors of your ideal target client. So for me, that is, they have a business that's been started. So my clients, they have a business that they've started. Um, they're offering a service to, from one-to-one service over the internet. So if they're an esthetician, they wouldn't be my client because you have to do that in person for the most part. I mean, maybe there's some (laughs) virtual estheticians where you teach anyway. So in the middle of this circle is very, very small. And because there's very few things that are absolute must. So I work primarily with women, but not all women. So women doesn't go in the middle. Then around the outside of the circle, you want to put all these examples of, or all these characteristics of your target clients that are 20%. So 20, at least 20% of your clients have this, but maybe only 20%. So say they're a woman, or in my case, maybe they're a coach, or they're a nutritionist, or they're a web designer. Um, some of them are moms. Some of them like to travel. Other of them have chronic illnesses. So on the outside of the circle, you're going to fill that outside with things that maybe 20% of your clients have. Now, this is now those key characteristics are now places that you're going to go look for your target clients online. So what I mean is maybe you decide that you want to engage in Facebook groups. So instead of looking for a Facebook group of your perfect client, because it doesn't exist, or you would be poaching your competitors, which is just not cool. You want to go look at these characteristics on the outside. So 
I might, I'm not a mom, but if I were, maybe I would join a mom's group where there's this Facebook group online that's mostly for moms and maybe 20% of that group is also a business owner who needs what I have to offer. So you start looking at these little 20% places. You're not going to find, you know, a blog that is exactly your target client, but you're going to find a blog where 20% of their audience is partially related to the kind of work that you do. So you start to put yourself in these places where a small percentage of your target clients hang out. And as you do this, you look at podcasts, you look at blogs or online magazines, you look at Facebook groups or LinkedIn or maybe local meetups, you start to see all these more possibilities of where your people are. Whereas before you're thinking, I don't know where my target client is, but now we're sort of out there searching. Does this make sense? Yes. Sounds like you need to be very clear on at least a few characteristics, specific characteristics about your target client, where they where they are in their life, what what their hopes and dreams are, you know, what their challenges are. And, exactly. and really just start connecting with them. And and it's free to do that in many ways. Yeah. Right. Right. And so if if folks are at a point where they're just starting with their bite size offer and they're like, I don't quite know these things yet. Great. That's why I love the hundred emails because you can start by connecting with people you know. And these people will then lead you to more clarity about who your target clients are. And you can start out there connecting. I love that. Let's go down memory lane a little bit more uh, way back. Let's go way, way back. So to childhood, (laughs) we always do this with every guest. Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) I want to know, what was your biggest money moment as a kid growing up? Something you overheard, experienced that was really pivotal in the sense that today as a woman, as a business owner, you really kind of... uh, You've held on to that memory. It has served you. I would say my biggest money memory isn't maybe one memory in specific, but I had this drive. I don't know if it was a drive or a sense really early on that I had to earn my own way. And I don't exactly know where that came from because I look at my sister who's four years younger and she didn't do things the way I did. When I was 14, I remember telling my mom I wanted to get a job and in a town I grew up in, you had to get like a child work permit from the town hall if you wanted to work. And I wanted to work. So my mom took me to the town hall and I got a work permit and I started working as a lifeguard and a swim instructor. And throughout, you know, as I went through middle school or junior high and high school, I worked a ton. So in addition to school and sports and all that kind of stuff, I also was working multiple jobs and I always just did that. And I don't know if it was because, um, no, it wasn't my, my parents expected me to pay for some things. Like if I wanted clothes, certain clothes I had to pay for it, but I was always babysitting and working lifeguard, teaching, swimming. I worked at a dentist on the weekends. I worked at the children's museum in town. I just was always working. And so this feeling of, I need to earn my own way seemed to come from somewhere <laughs> really early on. Yeah. So you think it was in, is it kind of in your DNA? You know, I don't know. There's, it, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about what we were going to talk about today. And I was like, she's going to pull out some tough ones. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see if I'm ready. And I've been trying to really think on like, what was the messaging I got about money as a kid? And it's interesting. There's this real mix of contradictory stories. Like 
we grew up in a, you know, maybe not super upper middle class, but definitely a, above average middle class family. For the most part, we had what we needed. Um, but I also feel like my parents, I don't know for sure, but I feel like they lived right at the edge of the money they had. They bought the house they could just barely afford. We went on vacations. They just had enough money for like everything was just sort of at the edge. And I must have picked up on this, like the shoe could drop at any moment, even though they didn't talk like that. There must have been something. So in me, it sparked something like, okay, if I want to be okay, if I want to be safe, I need to make sure that I start having enough. And, and that just started this working, you know, this, all these jobs, but my sister didn't do that. So, uh, so it's hard to know. I'm not really sure where, where exactly that came from, but so maybe a little bit of me, but maybe also it came from this place of fear. Mm. It's hard to know. Mm. Yeah. I, I will. I can definitely relate to fear. Fear has fueled everything in my life. I mean, I'm an optimistic person. I'm not pessimistic, but I think um, I have a working title for my, you know, next book, which it, you know, it's going to be part memoir, part lessons for working moms. And it's going to be called, nobody steal this idea, okay? It's going to be called A Healthy State of Panic. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Because that's kind of how I was raised. I had always this, there was this like, little bit of fear or a lot of it kind of was this moving sliding scale of fear uh, that I was raised with this lens of fear. And um, I'm kind of grateful for it. Like it wasn't so bad that it prevented me from trying new things and putting myself out there, but it gave me a bit of skepticism um, and shrewdness and sort of self-accountability that has really fed my life as a mom, as a woman who works, as an earner, as a breadwinner and all the things. So it worked out. So that's why it's a healthy state of panic and not like, uh, <laughs> a terrifying I, really, I love how you described it like that. I was just talking with somebody yesterday. Uh, we've got a lot going on in the business right now. And she's like, how are things going? And I was like, you know, there's this line right here where if I just tip over it, I would fall into a puddle of mess on the other side. But I'm just staying on this side of the line. and we're going, It's going to be okay. And that's exactly, it's like a healthy, like, oh, healthy panic. <laughs> yeah, it's a healthy panic. It's, it's good. It's, a, it's like a, it's a good adrenaline rush, you know, and it, it faces, it, what it does, it, it forces you to face like kind of a worst case scenario right? Like what happens if, and then prepare for that, you know, hope for the best plan for the worst. Yes. Yes. Not a bad philosophy. So (laughs) what has been your so money moment to date? You earn a lot of money. You're going to earn even more. You kind of have a really good uh, handle on how to charge for your services. Uh, What would you say was the first money win you experienced? Uh, in my business, I would say when it was, it was when I hit a hundred thousand dollars, because although, you know, you take out taxes and expenses, it, it doesn't really match my six figure corporate salary. But that to me, felt like, okay, oh, I can breathe now. Like we have replaced the corporate income. We have put ourselves back in this position of being, you know, not underwater and being in control of our finances. And that is when I really felt like I could take a deep breath. And then a year later I tripled. And I thought, okay, now we can really rest. Like this is sustainable. I have created something that as long as I just keep going, you know, it will continue to generate revenue income for me. I see that it is sustainable for the long term. This isn't just, I didn't push and burn myself out so quickly that it could just fall apart tomorrow, but I, I can do this. I can be okay. 
And from that place, uh, I could finally relax. And that's when it allowed some creativity to kick in. And actually, that's when I started to get really sick. <laughs> so oh. then it gave myself the opportunity to heal. But really that, that space of, okay, we're, we're going to be okay. Um, we're going to be fine. Everything is going to be all right. As long as I keep working, likely, you know, the sky is not going to fall. The floor isn't going to drop out from underneath me. Now I can ask myself, what do I want to do next? What would be really fun? And so as much as possible, I encourage people to, how can you get your safe self out of a state of money panic? Because every, that, those times when I was in such panic for year after year, it really becomes hard to be creative, be inspired, have these new ideas when that panic is the constant state. And it's not easy. And I certainly didn't get there quickly. But once that panic drops away, that's when the, that's when it starts to get fun. (laughs) I really agree with you. Um, it's true too. I, uh, I made some financial moves in my 20s, I think, so that I could alleviate some of the panic, right? I saved a lot. I paid off my student loans when I didn't quite have to. You know, I get Mm -hmm. questions a lot of times from listeners and they're like, you know, my student loans interest rate is not terribly high. I have a lot of other goals I'd like to save up for. Yeah, I could take out my savings and pay off my student loans. Should I? And I I don't really have a hard yes or no answer to that. I will say, though, that if it is something that would make you feel more at peace Mm. and and have resolve with your financial situation because you're debt-free and that can motivate you to really – get out there more and be more present and more have more headspace because you know it stresses us out to think that we have debt. Yeah. And that takes up some room in your mind and in also I think can debilitate you a little bit physically sometimes uh, depending on your personality and I think that that is something you have to really listen to. Yeah, that's one of the things I so appreciate about your philosophy is that sometimes there is not one best thing other than the thing that's going to support you sort of holistically and mentally when it comes to money. Like, should you pay it off? Should you not? You, Which is going to help you <laughs> in your life right now? Yes, yeah. I love that. From from various, in, in a variety of ways. So yeah, this yes. would be like financially cool if you do this, but wh- how, how's it going to make you feel too? Right. That's, right. that's worth considering. Yeah. Financial failure. What's been a big b- boo-boo um, in your money life? Oh, I would say, oh, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. I would say the first one was when um, shortly after I got married, I would say maybe it was just four or five months after we got married. My husband's wanted to be an entrepreneur since he was five. And I, it never occurred to me to do it. It just, beca- it just happened <laughs> to work out that way for me. And he, my husband went off to some seminar and he comes back, he went off by himself and he comes back and he's like, I know a business I want to start. And it required a hefty five figure investment here. I'm like 22, 23 and he's 28. We didn't really know any better. And we went for it. We, we didn't have cash. So we took out loans against our cars, which were, they weren't even paid off. We loaned up against our car. We got a 0% credit card and we just started, you know, paying it all down as soon as we could. And it turns out we did not do enough due diligence because all of that, he he could have started the same business with zero money up front. (laughs) So we, we just got, we got a little bit scammed, but you know, we learned, we learned a lot from that and it was fine. It didn't, you know, yeah, sure. It's money that we would have used otherwise, but it's, you know, life that happens. That happens. So you were married quite young. I did. I got married 
how old was I? I forget sometimes, like three days before my 23rd birthday. I can't even, I can't even believe my parents let me get married that young. <laughs> it's funny because I always assumed when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, I'll probably never get married. Like I'm such an independent person. I'll probably never get married. And then um, there we go. <laughs> and yet you did. And so yes. what, uh, why not wait? I know, I know, I know I have several friends that are absolutely in, head over heels with their partners. They're in love. And, um, they're just putting off marriage because they have, they want to make sure that they're, you know, that they're doing what they want first too, like as individuals that I don't know, uh-huh. everyone's different, but what made you want to get married so young? I think I was just really naive. And honestly, I think there was a part of me that just took over and I am, I am sort of independent to a fault. And so it says, <laughs> I want everything my way all the time. So it says a lot about my husband <laughs> that he, so what has been like 17 years or something, it says a lot about him that he sort of sticks around with, it can be kind of difficult. And so I think I almost, it was like a part, a wise part of me knew that if I didn't do it then when I was so naive and clueless, that I probably never would have because um, I, I would have, nothing would have ever been good enough for me. So, so it's probably better that I did it then, that I did it then. <laughs> well, at least you each, you both of you know each other very well, sounds yes. like. Yes. That, ha- that is yes. what it has afforded you at the least, is getting to know yes. each other very well at this point in your marriage. Right. Yes, it's good. So it is the holiday month of December and our sponsor, Chase Slate, and I would love to ask you, uh, Jenny, how do you budget or save for the gift giving season? Are you a big gift giver? I'm not a big gift giver. I, I think it's a, a currently an overcorrection from childhood where too much emphasis, I think, was placed a little bit on the things and not enough on just um, people. And so I've really, my whole family has pulled back a ton on gifts. I have two little nephews and I love to spoil them. They're really little. Um, so I love to spoil them and make life a little bit more fun and easy for my sister. But other than that, we aren't, we aren't really big into gifts over here. So budgeting then is really easy. All right. Well, that's fair. I kind of like that answer. Do you do any other kind of traditions? Do you go away? Do you, um, do you, are you a host? What, what goes on around the holidays in your world? You know, our family situation has changed so much over the past five years. So it used to be, you know, my husband and I would fly back to the other coast to see our families. Um, sometimes we would go to one or sometimes we would go the other. And then, you know, my sister moved out here where we are in Oregon. And then my husband's parents moved out here. Then both of his sisters moved out here. And so now, now we're still slowly, like, it's just different every year. There's not really, a, we haven't settled into one, one tradition because everything seems seems to keep changing. So we still don't even know what we're doing yet. We'll probably decide that two days before. (laughs) All right. TBD. (laughs) That's that's fine in my book. Before we leave, let's do some so many fill in the blanks. This has been a really great convo and I just want to wrap with a few uh, zingers. Mm. If I won the lottery tomorrow, the first thing I would do is... Oh, I know this one for sure. And that is I would set aside enough to live on modestly for the rest of my life, whatever that whatever that amount is. I haven't actually done the math on it, but we would figure that out. I'd give a little bit to our immediate family, my parents, my husband's parents, his sisters, my sister, my grandmother. And then I would take the rest of it, which I'm kind of counting on being like 25 to 50 million, depending on, you know, lottery's been kind of big lately. Yeah. <laughs> I would um, start a global nonprofit that helps women around the world, but especially in third world countries, start businesses so they can port- support themselves and their families. Because studies show that women, um, especially women in third world countries, but women around the world, when they are financially in charge of their lives, 
they contribute more to their families, they contribute more to their communities, and they basically raise up everyone in the process. And I want to help make that happen. A rising tide lifts all boats. That's for sure. Women are very charitable. In some cases, studies find more charitable than men, regardless of how much they make at all levels of income. So I'm with you on that. I'll help you with that. Thank you. Call me when you win the lottery. Okay. (laughs) Um, One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Uh, My health. I don't Mm -hmm. question any health expenditures, whether it's a doctor or practitioner that is not covered by insurance, supplements, um, whatever it is I need, uh, good food, grass-fed meat, um, organic vegetables, anything related to health. um, No, I don't question it for the most part. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally understand that. When I splurge, I like to spend my money on. So one of the things we started doing a couple of years ago, I guess back in 2014, is take, I live in Oregon and it is very dreary here in January and February. It is dark and gray and drizzles nonstop for like five months in a row. And we pack up the car and the dog and we drive down to Southern California and we rent a house by the beach for two months. And I we just do life in Southern California. And that makes all the difference in the world. That sounds phenomenal. (laughs) Phenomenal. Okay. Uh, When I donate, I like to give to blank because? I like to give to organizations that uh, help people step up, like not just money to do things, but that enable people to rise, as you were saying before, sort of rise their own boat, not just a handout, but really a hand up. And when I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is how to be comfortable taking bigger risks. I am conservative and risk averse and although that served me in a lot of ways, I also see how it's limited me. Mm -hmm. You have so little to lose when you're young, right? In your 20s, especially. That's when you're supposed to make all your dumb mistakes. (laughs) Be riskful. All right. And last but not least, I'm Jenny Shee. I'm so money because... I'm so money because I know money doesn't define me, but it's also always giving me opportunities to learn and grow as a person. You appreciate it. That's what it sounds like. Thank you so much, Jenny. She happy new year to you and uh, please stay in touch. Congrats on everything. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and happy new year to everyone. To learn more about Jenny, visit Jenny, That's S H I H. You can also follow her on Twitter at Jenny She. All this info is back at SoMoneyPodcast.com. You can listen to the audio, download the transcript, and click on Ask Farnoosh. That's where you can send me your money questions for the Friday episodes. Also, I'm very Instagram busy these days, doing a lot of content on Instagram and answering your questions there as well. So hit me up at Farnoosh Tarabi. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. So money.